Well, the central truth of what we want to think about, and it's a little bit radical, and it seems a little bit overzealous, but it's found in verse 21 there. So if you look down, can you see the little numbers that go through? They help us navigate through the little sentences. So if you're in the second column, you can see it here, the little number 21. The Apostle Paul says this, For me, he says, For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And it was a very realistic situation for him, to be honest with you, because as he writes this, the apostle currently has been banged up in prison because of the fact he's been telling people about Jesus, and the place where he was doing that didn't like the idea of uh, the news of Jesus going out, so they locked him up to shut him up, and he's now under sentence of, well, the threat of sentence of death, I should say, from the Caesar. He's been carried on a ship all the way to Rome, and he's waiting his trial, And he's sitting there with his pen in his hand, thinking of his Philippian mates and thinking, I need to encourage them in the gospel, but I realise that I'm up against it. Any day the door could open and they lead me out to the lions, or they go and set me on fire, or whatever it was that they tended to do with the Christians. And so he's like, hmm, I need to tell them about what's really valuable in life. Because you tend to find, don't you, that it's only when things are going wrong that you really figure out what you can hold on to as an anchor. And here he is, and he says, right, for me then, for me, to live is Christ. Hasn't worked out very well for you, has it, Paul? Build your life on Jesus, and you're about to die miserably. But notice, he says, for me to uh, live is Christ, and to die is gain. And at this point, we're like, whoa, now you're really sounding like a bit of a zealot, Paul. Are you one of these crazy, mad religious fanatics? You see, we don't mind people being a bit fanatical about Liverpool Football Club, or if they're a teenage girl about JLS. You know, that's okay. People are allowed to be fanatical about things that don't really matter. But we don't like people who are fanatical about the big questions. Be committed to your job, but the idea of, well, being committed to God, mm, not totally sure about this, is a little bit over-key. But how would you answer the question that Paul's chucking at each one of us? Paul says, for me to live is Christ. It's about Jesus. I build my life on him. And to die is gain, and we'll get to that bit in a minute. But how would you answer that? So if I was to put you on the spot and say, okay, for you, for you to live is, what would it be? For you to live, or for me to live is, foreign travel, seeing the world. For me to live is, well, my sports team doing brilliant. For me to live is, finally figuring out how to live with the person I've signed up to live with. For me to live is, having kids who actually sit still during the church service. For me to live is, well, you can fill in, can't you? There's all kinds of things that we say, you know, if I've got that, then life makes sense. So I was just thinking about some of the adverts that I'd seen on telly. You know, for me to live is, the adverts say, they say, for me to live is travel, to be pain-free. That's a good one. I'd like to be pain-free. For me to live is to be pain-free, to be debt-free, to have good kids and to have a nice shiny car. Not necessarily in that order, but a few of those things would be nice. I suppose when Paul is saying, for me to live is, what he's doing is he's asking questions for all of us as to what our bottom line is. What is the thing underneath that we think, hold on, our life makes sense and has purpose and will hold together if I have that thing. Your bottom line is the thing that shapes your choices and it helps you get through the day. And I suppose every time you wake up in the morning and you sort of, the lights come on in your consciousness and suddenly there's a whole flood of things coming into, what could I do today? How could I spend today? What are the threats and opportunities of today? Your brain will figure out, put it together and it, okay, I'll do that and I can live with myself. Or I'll do that and life will make sense. Or I'll work towards this and life will make sense. 
But the last thing that so often we want to listen to is Paul's suggestion. For me to live is Christ. It just seems so, doesn't it? And it seems like that a little bit sometimes, let's be honest, to people who regularly turn up at church. I found this quote early and I just thought, dear me, it's going to expose a few of us. I want Christianity, but not too much. Just enough to make me happy, but not enough that I get addicted. I don't want enough gospel that I start to hate uh, hold on, uh, covetousness and lust. Martin. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies, cherish self-denial and contemplate missionary service. I want enough gospel Christianity to make my children well behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too enlarged. I want a comfy, safe Christianity. I don't want to overdose on Jesus. And I think as all of us listen to that, we're like, yeah, that would be good, wouldn't it? So we can have a little bit of the spiritual thing, but actually the idea that we rebuild our lives on some values other than what we've already planned for, a little bit threatening. We don't want anything over the top. We don't mind JLS and footy. We don't want anything that messes with our life ambitions. And if you're somebody who is a Christian today, that whole mindset that's in our culture will have probably threatened you, probably without even realising it. Some of you come on a Sunday morning, you hear the gospel being explained, you hear the news about Jesus, and you're like, yeah, he really is worth living for above all other things. And then you go home and you look at your life and you think, you know, I'm not actually that different. I've sort of, there's a cultural sort of calming effect that, that tries to deny me the ability to stand for Jesus and it says don't believe anything too strongly and I just sort of go with the flow and some of you feel that, is there a way through that? Well, according to the Paul we're going to find out here, there is so what is it that Paul has got? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain and I just want to focus, I mean we could do the whole of that bit and I'll use some of that bit, but just for another 15 minutes or so, I just want to look, focus on that whole idea. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if you want to realise the impact and the power of what Paul is talking about here, his idea that it is okay and actually it's the most natural thing in the world to, to build your life on Jesus Christ, you need to spot the two things that he's about to show us. And it could be that some of you sitting here today, perhaps you've just looked at Christianity from the outside before. And you're not quite sure what it's all about or who God is and what he's like and you're still in the point of making up your mind. I can't tell you this is going to be incredibly helpful for you. What is it that Paul has seen? What two things come up in that phrase that ask questions of us and actually show us the value of building your life on Jesus Christ? Well, the first thing is, it's this. For me to love, live is something. Everybody will answer that question. For me to live, Everyone has an answer. And the interesting thing is we say, hold on, Paul's a bit overcommitted, isn't he? Every single person who has a heartbeat, who has breath in their body, will be very committed to something. Everybody. So I'm trying to think of some examples. So we've been watching the telly, there's a lot of talk about 2012, the Olympics. And if you're somebody who says, I want to go to the Olympics, you don't start, it's too late now, okay? So if you've got any ideas about competing next year, uh-uh. You need round about 10 or 15 years preparation. And in that preparation, you need to be single-minded. If you want to get to the Olympics, it will affect your diary. It will affect your diet. It will affect your friends. It will affect where you spend your money or where you live your life because you need to go to be somewhere near the trainers, don't you? If you are going to get to the Olympics, it will consume 
your life. Okay? That's not the only thing that will consume your life. I was trying to think of another example. How about if you're a fellow who's just decided they want a nice new shiny car? You're not very good, are you, at just treating it as a car? It becomes a little bit more than that. So you go out and you buy magazines. More magazines than you should? Or you go on the internet and start clicking away and trying to find all the best deals. You'll even maybe get a notepad and a piece of paper and say, oh, on that place, I can get it that place and that place. Then what you'll do is you'll go to your accounts and you'll have a look and say, well, how much can I afford? Uh-oh, I want that car, not that car. So what I need to do is I need to rejig all of that, 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 that. Oh, dear, kids, they want to do those activities. So the kids' activity we want that car. And then what you'll do is you'll go and have a little look. And you'll see the car and you'll say, oh, they want to sell it for that price. And I want to buy it for that price down there. And what you'll do is you'll start to haggle with them. And you'll tell lies in your haggling. Just so that you can get a lower price. So you can get that shiny car. And then at the end of the day, if you can't get the one that you want, what you do is you just buy a picture or a poster of it, stick it on the wall. And, and all of a sudden you realise that a tin can has dominated your imagination, your commitments, and it's consumed you to some degree. We, we, we can't be half-hearted creatures, can we? Have you noticed that? We, it's impossible to be half-hearted. Your, your brain, your heart, your, your mind will latch onto something. How about this one? I heard of uh, a fellow who'd had a conversation with a hairdresser recently. And they were talking about this issue as to what different people live for. And she, with brutal honesty, and I'm... I, you know, I, I, I bump into this every time, and she just, put, she just put words on it. And you'll know people, and perhaps you are this person. This is what she said. I live for the weekend to get drunk when I can forget for a little while how pointless life is. Now, have you noticed she's 100% committed to that? She's not a nominal believer. Every day. How am I going to get through today? Think about the weekend. It consumes her. You see, Paul had spotted that for all of us, we're not half-hearted. We will all build our life on something. We will build for something. And so often in this world, people say, well, for me to live is pleasure, or getting my own way, or having a car. For me to, to live is whatever, yeah, pleasure, generally speaking, in our, our culture. And to die, well, that's disaster. So what we do is we build our life in the search for pleasure and the avoidance of pain, and if we get that, then we're mediocrely happy. And what we do is we just plod on on life on a course that will help us to get that. But everybody's committed to it. And Paul spots that and says, actually, I want to tell you something that is infinitely more valuable, infinitely more satisfying, and will fill your heart, which means you can rejoice anywhere. And he says that it is Jesus Christ. And all of you is still sitting there thinking, well, tell me about Jesus. I just, first of all, I'm trying to set this up so you see that we're all committed to something. I want to say there's something better than what we so often default or slip into. Some of you have just never even thought of the question, what shall I look for in life? You just do it. Just go on autopilot. And when God's word comes to us, it stops us in our tracks rather impolitely and says, hold on, think about this. And here today he's saying, actually, life as it's supposed to be found is only found in Jesus. So the first thing, we're going to live for something. And then the second thing Paul says here is not everything that promises life delivers on it. Now you need to know a little bit about the Apostle Paul. Um, currently, his career is on the rocks. So if, you're the main, if your main job He's going out telling people about Jesus and you're locked up in jail. Can you do your job? No. Career's on the rocks. His health is under threat. He's sitting in prison, chained to some smelly guards who probably aren't feeding him very well. He probably isn't properly clothed. He's not got no proper sanitation. He knows what it means to live life in pain. So his health is under threat. His very life is under threat because at any point, 
possible, it could be snatched away from him by the, the Roman Emperor Caesar. He's in that point, so his life plan, I suppose, would not be what we would opt for, and yet he's in the midst of that situation in saying, do you know what? Living for Jesus is definitely the way to go. And you and I are a little bit confused by that. But can I tell you this, that the test of what you live for will not be what it provides when it's going well, it will be whether it works for you when, when things aren't going to play. Paul has found a definition of life, or a source of life that transcends his situation. So even when he's chained to grubby guards and getting beaten, even when he's not getting food, even though he's got his name and reputation being taken through the mud, he's able to say, it's okay, I haven't had my life taken away. So often for you and me, and you know it, your joy is tied up with your situation and circumstance going to plan, isn't it? So if you think you can get what you want to happen during the day, you'll smile, today's going to be a good day. In fact, you'll evaluate the end of today, this day, by whether or not things went to plan or whether or not things were easy. And in many ways, that means you're actually a victim or at the whim of your circumstance. Here was Paul, and his circumstances were collapsing, and he was like, I've still got my life. The life, the thing that I invest in and find as the centre of my hope, it's Jesus Christ, and nobody can take that away from me. And he didn't used to be that. You need to know that for the Apostle Paul. It never used to be that that was where he was, because he, he wasn't born a Christian. In fact, he used to kill Christians for a living. He was very good at it, and he was very well respected. So if we were to interview Paul, he would say something like this. He said, I used to be an evil man. I used to live to make a name for myself, and I didn't mind killing other people to get it. I used to try and bolster my own sense of morality by the choices that I made. I tried to look all right and shine up the outside, but inside I was very vicious. In fact, I was quite bloodthirsty. But I looked okay. And to my whole building of the way I built my life of being something of a religious zealot against Jesus Christ, I was 100%. I gave it my all. What made sense of my life was my morality, my uprightness, as if I had something to offer God. And then one day, and I wasn't expecting it, and it's just his style that he does it this way, I got caught up by Jesus. He came and invaded my life rather rudely, and revealed something of who he was to me. And I got a glimpse of him and his greatness. And it was overall, it just, I was overawed by it, he would say. I saw his burning purity, his royal holiness, his sublime worth, and in the blink of an eye, I realised that for all my morality and trying to build my life my way, what I'd actually been doing, I should have been living for him, but I was actually living for me. I was trying to build a name for myself rather than trust him for a name. I was trying to be my own saviour. I was trying to be the master of my own destiny, the captain of my own ship. I wanted for me, I was going to decide what life was for me. And I realised in the moment that that is the ultimate sin. Sin in the Bible is simply the word that says, trying to define my life by me and what I think life is, rather than turning to the true God who made us and finding life in him. And the interesting thing about Paul's story there, about what he was like and what he had been doing, is that so often it's the same as us, isn't it? We try to define our own life, live, with no reference to God. If he's lucky, he gets onto our Christmas cards, or very occasionally we might turn up at church or actually think about him through the week. Sometimes we can even go weeks of just being part of the church and going through the motions without actually engaging with him. And every time we do that, effectively we're saying, you know, you are up there, and you're a bit like... 
you're a bit like one of those debt collectors, aren't you, God? You're up there, and I know I need to pay the piper, but really, I'm going to get on with life here and do it my way. And Paul, when he met Jesus, he said that. How can I live like that anymore? I can't possibly live like that. And yet Jesus didn't quite keep quiet, did he? When Paul met the Lord Jesus, Paul had one more thing to click on to. What Paul came to understand was that anything you build your life on here will ask that you give your life to get it. If you want your shiny new car, you have to pay to get it. If you want to be able to have that great weekend at the, uh, coming up at the weekend, you have to pay to get it. Hope you get enough money, hope you go to the right place, hope you look good enough, hope you get... If you want to get to the Olympics, you have to work and get and get them working. And then Paul suddenly realised that Jesus is the one thing you can build your life on that doesn't say you pay to get it. It's the thing that you build your life on and Jesus says, I'll pay so that you can have my life. Because Jesus, for those of you who know the Easter story, know that the Lord Jesus came to give his life so that you can get life. That's why we sing. So I suppose if you could ask Jesus a question today, the Lord Jesus, the King of glory, the God who made us and loved us, would say, for me to live is you. Remember what we live for, we give 100% for, we're uncompromising, we, we, we just give ourselves to it. The Lord Jesus came and he gave his life so that we could get life. He said, what is life for me? It's having Mark or Angie or Chris or Steve. I want them. And they're cut off from me by their sin and they can't come near. I will, I'm a zealot for them. I'm totally committed to them. I will go and live the life they should live and I will die the cruel death that they deserve to die for their sin against me and I will carry it on myself so that they can have a new life. I'll do anything. My life is given so that you can see, be restored, be made whole, be saved. For me to live is you. Now if you're a believer here today, let that wash over you. Take it to your heart. This isn't just some rhetoric from some fellow at the front waving his hand. This is Bible gospel truth. That Jesus said, I will, for me to live is you. I want you. Nothing and nobody had ever said that to Paul before. Paul had always looked to himself to feel as if he was worth something. And suddenly in a moment, he suddenly realised that Jesus said, you're my life, and I'll pay the ultimate price to get you. I'll die to have you. And he had done. Now if you've got that, you've got everything. No wonder Paul's sitting in prison with all that mess around him, and he's standing in his hands up and saying, I'm unsinkable. I'm untouchable. Why? Because my life isn't built on something that can be taken away from me. Beat me, whip me, remove my food, chuck me to the lions, make a mockery of me in my name. You can't take my life from me. I can't go because Jesus is my life and he's secured me now and for all eternity. So if you're a Christian, a little bit like Paul, perhaps if you build your life on your career, if your career goes down the pan, if you've got it, but you can still stand because your career is not your life. You work and you work right, but you're not leveled by and flattened because Jesus is your life. It hasn't been taken away. 
What about with your health? What happens if you're a Christian and your health gives way and you're gutted because you want to be able to, you've been given arms and legs and you want to be able to run around and serve and help people out, but do you know what? I can stand because my life is not found in my health. What about my choices and preferences? So often, so common, so popular today is if I've just got freedom to make choices, I can have the options that I want. We live in the next cafe world where it says the product is all about you and we believe that and think, actually, that's brilliant. What happens if suddenly you get your options taken away because your salary's dropped or your money's or you've been made unemployed? What happens if certain other people do cruel things to you that limit your options? And suddenly you're head in your hands, no, if you're a Christian, you're not. You're like, oh well, my options and my preferences have been removed, but they're not where my life is found. My life is found in Jesus. What if you'd say, hold on, my life is found in my kids? And so many people are. Or even the getting of kids or the bringing up of kids. And what happens then when you, they turn against you? They're snotty little rotters. What happens if they just disappoint you and don't turn out the way you want them to? What happens if you're standing in the funeral service with them in the casket? You see, if your life is in them, your life has been snatched away from you. But if your life is in Christ, you mourn and grieve. But your life hasn't been taken from you because your life is found in Jesus Christ. What is Paul saying here? He wants you to just build your life on something that can actually carry the weight. And the news is that anything other than Jesus is a counterfeit. Anything at all. Paul says, here I am. And he says, do you know what? To live is Christ and to die is gain. Can I tell you that, you, that Christ is the only word you can put into the first half of a sentence and the second makes sense. So if you put, if, uh, for me to live is beauty, then to die is gain. Can't say that. Okay. To die is disaster. The only word you can put in there, to live is Christ and to die is gain, means that you get to be with Jesus even more, which is absolutely wonderful. So let's say your life is removed from you. Let me tell you in the Bible that death is always the great enemy. It's not something to be celebrated in and of itself. It's a cruel reality. But actually Paul says death is gain. It's a little bit like if you're at school and the bell goes at half past eleven and the teacher says, ah, Good news, you lot, sorry, school's ending here, you're being called home early. Do the kids sit there going, oh, we should stay? They're like, way, off we go, we're going home. And that's what it likes for a Christian, because even death can't object you of Jesus, it just brings you closer to him. I found this not so long ago, it was um, a fellow who's a minister of a church, he died about 12 months ago, I know some of his the staff, it's a big church in Cambridge. And he wrote a little booklet about how he faced death. This is what happened to him. Uh, I went into hospital to have a gallbladder removed, but the surgeon found cancer. That was, uh, it was past surgical solution or radiotherapy. The oncologist estimated that I might have six to nine months to live. I said to the surgeon when he broke the news that what he just told, uh, uh, what he just told me was, as, as for a Christian, was not good... Sorry, I'll get this right. I'll, let me get that sentence. I said to the surgeon when he broke the news that what he just told me was, for a Christian, not bad news, but good. It was not the end of the story, but the beginning. And I saw an imaginary bubble appear over his head saying, this man is in total denial. But this minister goes on, and obviously he's gone to be with the Lord, now he goes on, he says what was most unusual was the reactions of Christians when he told them the news that he was dying. 
He said the resurrection plays a smaller part in contemporary gospel proclamation news about Jesus. Which may explain why with a, a good few fellow Christians I've seen similar unspoken speech bubbles like that one over the surgeon's head. They find it hard to believe that the resurrection to eternal life is a prospect to be welcomed. And like the pagan world, they assume Christians should dread death and seek to extend life at all costs. And I listen to that and I thought, yeah. So if you're a Christian, you don't want to waste your life. You want to use it as best you can. But actually, if you're going to live now, live it for Christ. And then when death comes in whichever form, then it's like, well, hey, we're off to be with Jesus. And Paul's saying to us, can you find anything else that gives such certainty and confidence? A saviour who loves you. A reason to live. In fact, the reason that we were made for, but we've all filled it with counterfeits. This is the reason, says the Apostle Paul. I didn't find it because I'm clever. It came and hit me like a brick. When I met the Lord Jesus and his words of authority spoke into my life saying, you need forgiveness, you need to build your life on me, I'm why you're here. And then for every Christian, ever since the Apostle Paul, that is what he's calling us to. Is it, does that mean we're fanatics? No. Does it mean we're nuts? No. It means that because of the reasonableness of, and the preciousness of who Jesus is and what he has done, we say, with the old life, I'm living for him. Because only he can carry the weight of my expectation. Only he can fulfill my hopes. So as I wrap up, I just want to tell you what that will look like. And we're told here in verse 20, the one before, the one we just listened. Paul says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. If you're a Christian, how do you spend your life now? Well, whether your life or your death, you want to exalt Jesus, which means make much of him. So in the, the way, and well, we're told what that looks like. To make much of Jesus in our life, well, we're told that it means labour, working for others to help them grow in the faith. Verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue, to, uh, continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So if you're somebody who says, my life is Christ, the way you spend time now, you have your jobs, you do whatever, but all of it is done with a way to try and help others hear more of the hope and joy in Jesus. I love that. He's saying, hmm, go to heaven, which would be boss, or carry on living in the mangy world, probably suffer quite a bit, but help people live. Which would you choose? Fast track to glory, please. But he says, actually, no, I'm prepared to put off my well-being so that I can help others know more of this joy. And he puts it in a beautiful way in the verse 26 there. So that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. He's saying, look, the more you get of Jesus into your life, the more it will fill you with joy. And I don't mind putting off a bit of gain of being with Jesus for a little while and put up with a load of nonsense so that you can be helped in that. And I think that's a sad indictment sometimes on people nowadays around churches who sometimes we won't even turn the telly off so we can go and encourage other believers. So let me ask you, if you're a Christian here today, how are you exalting Christ by making choices that show that you know that the best way for joy in your life and the lives of others is serving and encouraging them? Are you turning up regularly to to meet people, even when you don't feel like it? Are you going along to fellowship group? Are you coming here and making this the priority, so not out of vain duty, but so that you can see other people encouraged in the faith? So exalt Christ in your life, says the Apostle Paul, and finally he says, exalt Christ in your death. So I suppose many people say that for our lives nowadays, it's to live is fun and to die is disaster. 
If you're a Christian, as Mark Ashton's testimony said there, death is only the beginnings of the story. We can be confident as we face death, knowing that Jesus is bigger than that. I will tell you just the story of one guy who basically was untouchable. He said, Any, anybody who's a believer in Jesus is untouchable. He's, you can't shut them up, basically, if they really know that Jesus is their life. He was a guy of the, the second century. His name was Polycarp, and he died at a ripe old age at 86. Uh, it, it, was quite a, it was quite interesting what happened to him at the end, because he'd been the bishop of an area called Smyrna um, in uh, what's modern-day Turkey now. And for a whole number of years, he'd been going around, this is a couple of centuries after the Apostle Paul, telling the good news about Jesus, and the authorities had been trying to catch up with him and chuck him in the clink, shut him up so that nobody else could hear about Jesus. Finally, they caught up with the guy, uh, and he was held up in front of the proconsul or magistrate of the day, and he was asked to answer a few questions. And he says, um, he was asked, are you, are you Polycarp and a Christian? And they needed to clarify this, because like I said, they've been hunting for him for ages. Uh, and having said he was, um, they tried to get him to deny Jesus. Tell us Jesus isn't real. Tell us he's not his life. Tell us there's no forgiveness in this. Tell us that Caesar is the best way to go. And it's only recorded in oldie woldy language, so I'll read it to you in oldie woldy language. Have respect to thy old age and swear by the fortune of Caesar and I will set you free. You must deny Christ. So what's he going to say? His life is on the line. And he says this. 86 years have I served Christ and never has he done me any injury. How can I blaspheme my king and my saviour? At which the proconsul got angry. Swear by the fortunes of Caesar. Hmm. Well, since thou biddest me to swear by uh, by the Caesar, pretending not to know what I am, let me tell you boldly, just in case you haven't got it, I am a Christian and Jesus is my Lord and Saviour. And if you wish to know what the doctrines are about who Jesus is, appoint me a day and I will let you know them. I love that. He's about to be have his head cut off and he's like, can I tell you about Jesus? He was about to be killed, which is great, so he's trying to be an evangelist there. But the pro-council comes back at him and says... I have wild beasts at hand and will call them to you lest you recant and repent. To which the 86-year-old Polycarp says, call them in. I will cause you then to be consumed by fire seeing you despise the beasts so very, very much. And of course nobody wants to be burned alive but Polycarp replied like this, you threaten me with fire that lasts for but an hour but your ignorance of the fires that are to come in judgment against all those who stand about against God and his king, a fire which Christ took for me so I may live. Why wait? Bring forth what you will. You see, with Polycarp, what a dude at 86. You can't shut him up. Why? Because if you leave him alive, he'll just speak about Jesus, which he wants to do. And if you kill him, he goes to be with Jesus. It's like win-win. And if you're a Christian, you don't look to waste your life. You look to use it. Why? For his glory. Why? For to me, uh, for, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So let me encourage you. If you want to live by that today, then do. And the way to live by that is every day to put up before your head and your heart as you're in the morning waking up in that semi-comatose state saying, what's my life going to be about today? What is most valuable? Where can I find life? What you do 
is you remember that Jesus said for you, for me to live is you. And as you take, take that deep within and you let that wash over you, it will reorientate to the point where you're saying, for me to live is Christ. We're going to sing two songs back to back now, which are all about that. Nathan, could you stick up the first one? Bethany, could you nip in there just while I'm explaining and go and ask mommy to come through so she can play the piano? Lovely. Well done. And this one talks about the story that Paul would have experienced. It's a beautiful new song. It's only been out about six months. You can see it there. It says, I, was, I, w- I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. In other words, the, the writer saying, I thought I understood where life was found. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. You see that's the story in Paul? Just click on one more time. But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. And it's interesting that the author of that song, who's got such a heartbeat with Paul, would also write a chorus that says this. All I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. If you're a Christian, that's you today. Let's stand and sing together.